Good morning. I think it was uh, in the Gulf War, probably more than any that I uh, can remember, and that is not that many, I might add, being as young as I am, but it was in the Gulf War that, that they started the emphasis on precision bombing. Do you remember in, in the first Gulf War? that you'd see the uh, the press releases of, of these places and they'd have the target mapped out. And, and I'm sure the reason was, in part, was to convince us that we were only killing the bad guys. You know, and that was so precise. I, I, I'm not sure people in that part of the world thought it was as precise as we did, but there was a sense in which there, there was this idea of, of precision in, in what took place. And I have to confess that as I have watched people who are good at what they do, I, I love and I marvel at the precision with which they do it, whether it's people who are working on computers or, or woodworkers or whoever it is. I just love to watch somebody who really knows what they're doing because they're so precise. And generally speaking, I don't feel like I am. But when I look at this text... I'm reminded of the fact that God is precise in what he does. There there is in this text this sense, the more you come to look at the text, there is this sense of the precision of God in dealing not only with his enemies, that is, with those who deserve retribution for the wrong that they have done, but also the way in which God isolates those who are not in the line of fire, or should not be, and he keeps them from the judgment that he brings upon those, in particular, those who have been unfaithful to the household of Jerubbabel, of of Gideon, and have killed his sons, or those who have strengthened the hand of those who have done so. Those are the ones who were in God's sights, so to speak, as we come to this text. And it amazes me how God orchestrates the events that we see described here so that exactly what God has purposed and planned is going to take place. There is another thing that, 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 that you have to look at longer and more carefully to see, and that is the subtleties of this text. You know me, I think, well enough to know that I'm not into the literary subtleties that a lot of people are. That that stuff doesn't even get me. Even the chiasms aren't really something that crank me up too much, although they do others. But But the more I look at this text, the more I see that there are these subtleties that are being played out. For example, just just the whole thought of Baal, Baal. And here's this character that comes along whose name is Gaal. And, and then you've got the word, the root for Baal is the word that is used for leaders as well as for the, the God Baal of the covenant. And, and so I'm amazed when I come to the New American Standard Version and it says, and the men of the city when almost all the other translations say the leaders of the city. But there's a sense in which this, it's the leaders in Shechem, and of course uh, Abimelech as a leader, who bears primary responsibility and there are the ones who are going to fall under God's judgment. So you have all these subtleties that are played out. Now, I told you last week, and it took me a week 
to think about it and finally to read about it in a, one of the commentaries to get it. Remember I said to you I couldn't figure out why the emphasis was placed on one stone when, when it says that 70 of those sons were all killed on one stone. And, and I think it was Younger in his commentary who said, how many stones did it take to kill Abimelech? One stone. It's just a subtlety. But my point is that the more you look at the text, the more you see a skillfully written work that is not just some hacked out, you know, late night like, like I used to do my term papers where they'd still smoke in the morning when I turned them into the prof. This is, this is skillfully written stuff. And the deeper you dig, the more you see the skill in this and, and the hand of God, not only in the events, but even in the way that they are recorded. All right, I've got to get this off my chest. I call this the keys to crooked politics. And, and my point in all of this is simply to say that things haven't changed a bit. But look at the elements in this. One, special interest groups. Who is the special interest group? Well, the special interest group is the relatives of, uh, of um, Abimelech, isn't it? His, they're called the brothers of his mother. But it's, it's the family, and they feel like there's something that they're going to gain from that. And then they play off with those influential people. It is, it is Abimelech's relatives who go to the influential people, the leaders of Shechem, and say, you really need to make this guy king, and persuade them that it's in their best interest to do that. So here you have ancient lobbyists uh, that, that are there. I mean, what's changed in, in, over the years? Money. One of the things that political candidates do, especially those who win, they go out and they raise more money because they've got to have money to do their thing. Here it is in our text. Interestingly, that money comes from a questionable source. I'm not going any farther than that. Unprincipled men who are willing to perform dirty deeds for money or other reasons. I was thinking about Chuck Colson when he was talking about himself as the president's hatchet man. These are these hatchet men that were hired for the 70 pieces of silver to kill 70 sons. They were willing to do whatever it took for a price. And there are, unfortunately, people who are willing to do that, not necessarily kill people, but certainly destroy them in some way if they get the chance and are rewarded for it. Then there are the people who just look the other way when wrongs are committed because somehow they gain. Have you ever, you ever seen people like that? I remember my uncle used to say, I don't care, I'm not picking on unions particularly, but he used to say, I don't care whether the unions are corrupt or not, it gives me better wages. That kind of logic is frightening because that's what happens in Shechem. People are willing to look the other way. They may not have shed the blood of those 70 sons themselves. They knew it was done and they went along with it because of self-interest. And then politicians who love power and prestige and are willing to destroy others to get it. Well, my point is simply this. Over the centuries, nothing's changed. It's all there. All the elements are here, I think, in the, in the Old Testament text, and they're surely with us today. Well, let's talk about uh, what we should have gained from last week for just a moment. There is Gideon's legacy, and, and one of the commentators remarked, and it's probably true, that all of the evils that come 
are in a sense a part of Gideon's legacy. Not only his, uh, his um, successes that were good, but the popularity that led to him being offered the kingship. And seemingly, while he said he wouldn't receive it, he seems to have taken uh, perhaps more uh, authority than he should have uh, or more gratitude than he should have in certain ways, quickly forgotten, of course. He has a son by a concubine. And, and there are those, I haven't seen the conclusive evidence yet, but it seems like the commentators are, are generally agreed that she is a Canaanite concubine. So Abimelech, the one son who comes, as it were, from an illegitimate source, is now the uh, source of Israel's problems. And of course, there is Gideon's uh, ephod, which, which he made, which led Israel down the primrose path, I know that they became worse at his death, but it seems like he set the stage for their uh, idolatry, even greater idolatry at his death. So here comes, in chapter 9, here comes Abimelech. And and by the way, one note, Gideon is never called Gideon in chapter 9. He's always called Jerubbaal. Let Baal contend. And so I think when he comes to his uh, relatives in Shechem and he says, you know, do you want to, uh, do you want to uh, have these other sons of Jerubbaal? And remember, these people are worshiping Baal Barith, the Baal of the covenant. And, and so do you want to worship Baal of the covenant or do you want to worship these sons that come from Fuion Baal? I mean, that's what the name meant. And so you got your choice. Pro-Baal against Baal. And, and that's part of his argument. So he goes to the relatives and he makes this argument. He asks them to appeal to the influential people of the city. And the argument is, shall one rule or many? And do you want a stranger or a relative in power in, 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 in uh, the greatest office in, in our part of the, the, the land? And of course, uh, kind of predictably, The people, the leaders, agree to support Abimelech. They then give him the 70 pieces of silver out of the temple funds, the temple of El Barith, the god of the covenant, no doubt the same as Baal Barith. But they give him the 70 pieces of silver, which just happens to correspond to the number of people who are going to get killed. Seems to me they knew what they were doing as they funded that assassination plot, and then Abimelech and his hired henchmen go, kill those 70 sons on one stone, and then he is acknowledged and appointed and installed as as the king. When the word of his installation reaches, the one surviving son who escaped the assassination, the murder of the 70 sons, Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim and basically says, uh, curses on you because you have either, uh, well, he's speaking primarily to the people of Shechem and not to Abimelech. You have strengthened the hand of the one who killed these sons. And therefore, if if God was in this, then blessed be you. If this was done out of unjust and impure motives and actions, then curses on you. And remember, he likens uh, uh, this by telling the, the story of the trees who want to have a tree that waves over them, that presides over them, and they go to the, 
the olive tree, and then they go to the to the um, fig tree, and, and then finally they go to the grape vine. They're working their way down, and they finally get to that thorny tumbleweed bush that's good for nothing but burning, and they offer the, the kingship to him. And he says, May fire come out of Abimelech and destroy the leaders of Shechem. And may fire come out of the people of Shechem and destroy Abimelech. Now, you know that fire came from Abimelech, right? Literally, fire is going to come. Well, the word that's used uh, to describe uh, this woman who is involved is a word which is very similar in sound to the word fire. So if you say to yourself, where's the fire for Abimelech? Well, he had some, let's just call her a fiery redhead who gets him uh, with her millstone and justice is, is played out. So that's where we come in our text when we reach uh, verse 22. We see the demise of Abimelech. If the first verses, uh, the, uh, the first 21 verses of chapter 9 are the rise of Abimelech to power, this is his uh, demise that is described uh, for us in our text for today. Notice that the text tells us that Abimelech governs for three years. Now, the translations differ on this, but it is interesting that the word that meant to rule as king is not used. And I think the author is telling us this is no legitimate king. Yes, he may have ruled as a prince. He may have had authority. He may have governed. He was not Israel's king. Uh, And so anyway, he does this for three years. Another thing that's interesting is we know the oppression comes from within as opposed to from from without. It's not from the Midianites or the Philistines or, or whatever. This is from within uh, Israel that the oppression comes. This is the shortest period of oppression that Israel has experienced. In other instances, it was longer. But God has chosen to make this oppression the shortest uh, so far in the book of Judges. The text tells us that an evil spirit was sent by God uh, to come between the people of Shechem and Abimelech. And there are various ways of handling that. But the term itself is, is the one that's used very commonly with Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord comes on. And it seems to me that there is some demonic element going on here. Although whatever you want to say, there is animosity that now has been created between these allies. Isn't that something? How, how you know, honor among thieves, it doesn't last long. Now these guys who were together in killing those sons and, and, and installing Abimelech, now he and his forces are, are at odds with one another. Verse 24 is very clear. This is God's doing, and it is for God's purposes. So at the beginning of the account of Abimelech's demise, and at the end of the account, verse 56 and 57, At the end of the account, the text is very clear. This is God's doing, and the issue is retribution, divine judgment for the wickedness that's been done, not only by Abimelech, but by those who facilitated or strengthened his hand in the killing of his sons. Now, I have to tell you that the first part of verse 25 puzzles me, and and I've, I've agonized about exactly what that means. It says, the leaders of Shechem rebelled against Abimelech by putting bandits in the hills. By the way, here's another uh, phrase that gets picked up, lie in wait. 
Oftentimes, what happens by someone else will be mirrored. Uh, and so you have um, Abimelech's argument for why he should be king. It's going to be mirrored by Gaal. He's going to have the same logic. In fact, he's going to out Abimelech, Abimelech, in his, in his reasoning for that. But here you have this effort for people to lie in wait against Abimelech. And what's going to happen when Abimelech comes to battle? He's going to twice be said to be lying in wait for the people of Shechem. So here's Shechem hiring people to lie in wait against Abimelech. Abimelech will later hire people uh, or send his hired people to lie in wait against the people of Shechem. I had to ask myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is this stuff about being on, on the top of the mountains and, and holding up or ambushing uh, the people who pass by? And, and how are you lying in wait for Abimelech on the tops of the mountains? Now, I'll tell you what I had to do. I had to forget that I came from the Pacific Northwest. How tall are the mountains... Gerizim and Ebal. How tall are those mountains that we're talking about? Ballpark. 3,000 feet max. I got to tell you, folks, those hardly qualify as foothills where I come from. So it isn't as though this guy's on Pike's Peak picking off people who go by because they wouldn't. Who's going to take the highway down the middle of the mountains? Nobody. But what happens is, you got to, this is, this is from my vast experience of watching the Lone Ranger. And, and, you know, where they ambush the things. But remember the bad guys, they always hide behind the rocks. And, and then they hear the stagecoach coming and they rush down and they take, that's what they're doing. They're on a high spot. It doesn't take that long to get from the top of Mount Gerizim down to Shechem. And so what you're doing is you're stationing yourself on the high places, looking down, watching for Abimelech. And while you're there, Abimelech's, I think, part of his income came from charging tariffs. It was a toll booth sort of thing. And so he's charging tariffs for all the caravans that go by. And so what they're doing is they're goading, they're challenging Abimelech to battle. They're saying to him, we're taking over your territory. So it's a turf war, in effect. They're taking over the territory. They're taking the tariffs for themselves, and they're lying in wait because they hope Abimelech comes after them because they want to, they want to punch out his lights. They want to, they want to cash him in. And, and the text says, uh, and Abimelech found out. Uh, by the way, uh, the Net Bible does a good job here except for the word but. It's not but, it's so. So Abimelech, they want Abimelech to hear because they want him to come after them so they can lie in ambush. And by the way, if Abimelech comes by on his way to Shechem and he's not with his hired thugs, that's a great time to pick him off and assassinate him. But he doesn't come. This is not the way God's going to bring about justice. He's got a better plan. But let's just say that in the, in the course of events here, what's happened is Abimelech has had the heat turned up under him and he's getting mad. And you'll see as this story develops, he's really mad. And this guy just won't cool off. He's going to kill everybody in sight by the time this is over. So it does the job. Abimelech hears and he's thinking about how he can do this guy 
how he can do these people of Shechem in. Now, I didn't have enough room on your PowerPoint presentation, but I really wanted to call this, Who Has the Gall to Oppose Abimelech? Because isn't that really what we're talking about is, who is going to stand against this guy? They've got these guys out there in ambush. They're hired thugs. And, and frankly, it hasn't worked. So here comes this guy that, that the people of Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, have not sought him out. He's a guy who just happens to be coming along, and he lands in Shechem, and he lands, notice, with his brothers, with his relatives. One of the themes you ought to think about in this is, why is there so much emphasis on brothers? Why is there so much emphasis on relatives? Why is there so much emphasis on brotherhood in the New Testament? And what does Abimelech think of brotherhood? Seems to me there's something going on here that may be food for thought for you. But anyway, here comes Gaul and his, um, and his brothers. They roll into town. And uh, it says, the people of Shechem put their trust in him. And it's going to tell us a little bit about how this thing develops. It's very interesting. The Septuagint sometimes has variations in its text. And it says two things uh, in, when it translates this verse. It says, one, the people of Shechem were persuaded by Gaal, which they were, of course. And then it says in the variant, they put their hope in him. In other words, the people of Shechem don't want Abimelech as their king anymore. The leaders do not want him. How do we get rid of this guy? They place their trust in the wrong person, in Gaal. They've entrusted them. They've got faith in him, certainly not faith in God. Now, Davis does a great job with this, but I just picked up on his language where he calls, uh, talks about boasting at Baal's bar. I mean, look at what happens. It, Gaal is a guy who just talks himself into trouble. And, and uh, you know, here's a guy who's going to get himself drunk in the temple, in the temple of El Baal, right? Uh, of, of El Barith. He's going he's gonna to go out with his, with his other uh, Shechemites. They're going to go out into the field. It's, it's Miller time, okay? They're going out. They're having the harvest of the grapes. They're stomp- it sounds like Noah, doesn't it? Remember where Noah goes out, plants the vineyard, and gets, gets, some, gets happy with grape juice, and woo you know, things don't go so well. So anyway, here is Gaal. He goes out with his fellows. They come now with their wine to the temple, the temple of El Barith. They come there and, and they, they have this communion. I mean, literally, they eat and they drink and they curse Abimelech. Strange worship service, but that's what they do at the temple of El Barith. And in the process of that worship service, when, when uh, Gaal is well-oiled, he shoots off his mouth and he just says, This Abimelech stinks. Oh, if only I were given the authority to reign, I'd kick this guy out of town in a heartbeat. It's really what he says. It's a little paraphrase. Isn't that what he said? Doesn't that sound like somebody else later on? Sounds like Absalom to me. Standing outside saying, Oh, if I were only the one in charge, I'd I'd give you guys a 
everything you were asking for. Anyway, so here he boasts at the bar and really overextends himself. Now he's shot off his mouth. They put their trust in him. He's got to fight when Abimelech comes to town. And uh, that's where we meet Zebel. Zebel is Abimelech's lieutenant. He's the guy who has been appointed to watch over the affairs of Shechem because Abimelech is an absentee king. That is, Shechem is not his capital. That's where he got his start. Shechem is not his capital. He's off somewhere else. And, and we'll, I'll tell you what the name of that town is in a minute. But anyway, he's off, and he has to come to Shechem. And that's why they're lying in wait for him, as I understand it, is because they want to catch him on his way to Shechem, except he hardly ever shows up. So here's Zebel. He's the guy who is the lieutenant. He's in charge. He overhears the threats that are being uh, put forth by Gaal, and he sends word to Abimelech. And he says, we got some jerk in town and his relatives who are shooting off their mouth. And the people of Shechem are buying his story. And if you don't get over here pretty soon, there's going to be trouble. So what I would recommend is that you come and lie in wait. Here we are again with that expression. You come and lie in wait and then attack. In, when the morning light comes, you come and attack the city of Shechem and, and uh, shut this guy up and put an end to what uh, he is proposing. So that brings us to the attacks of Abimelech at, at Shechem. And there basically are, are two major attacks. I call it phase one and phase two. In phase one, you have verses 34 through 41. Interesting, too. There, there is almost a countdown. Again, you, you may think I'm, I'm kind of wacky and I spent too much time in the books this week. But he starts out with four companies. The next battle, phase two, will be with three companies. And it's all going to come down to one, isn't it? And it's almost like, here's, I think it's Samuel, but it's almost like Samuel saying, four, three, two, you know, and one is the drop, the, the millstone on, on Abimelech's brain. All right, phase one, four companies. They're coming down from the hills now. They've, they've been hiding out overnight. Now, as I understand it, you're talking about, the, when it speaks about Israel, you're speaking about this, the, the, the plains right around Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So you're not talking about a whole lot of, of distance. And in fact, he will come to the city of Shechem within the day. So it's not very far away. And apparently these are, these are cities that are nearby. We don't know a lot. In fact, we don't know where Aruma is, but that seems to be where he has made his headquarters. That seems to be his capital. And so he comes, he hides out, and Zebel really enjoys this. This is great pleasure. He's been sitting there in the city representing Abimelech, and this big mouth has been winning the whole city over. And, and he, he does his bragging in the bar and whatever. And Zebel has had it. He really wants to see this guy go. But he wants to be a part of it. So he's sitting there and early in the morning. You know, and this is where Davis says he's got his Starbucks coffee and his, his French roll and whatever. And he's, he's watching away. And here are the two, Zebel and Gaal. And they're looking out, looking over the city, looking out the gate. And, and, and so old uh, uh, Gaal says, oh, wow, I think I see somebody, some men coming down off those mountains. And, and what does uh, 
what does Zebul say? Here's where David's paraphrases a little bit, but I like it. Have you seen your ophthalmologist lately? Man, you're seeing stuff. There ain't anybody out there. You're crazy. And then a little bit later, it says, no, no, I, I see people coming right down from the middle. They're, they're coming right, they're, they are men. And that's when Zebul gets his chance. He says, okay, big mouth, put up or shut up. You were the guy shooting off your mouth about how tough you were, and you wanted to take Abimelech on? Go get him. So off he goes. He's now out outside the gate. You remember that, that a, a number of people, there were a lot of casualties that took place. But who was not captured or killed? Gaal or his brothers, at least the majority of them. They fled back into the city, inside the city gates, and to safety. And so they weren't killed. And, and uh, uh, Abimelech goes back to Aruma. Pardon me, but Davis got me going. I call this Aruma therapy. <laughs> and, and so he's getting braced up for the next day. And, 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 and so here is where it is not Abimelech who gets his hands on Gaal, it is Zebel. And what does Zebel do with Gaal? He drives him and his brothers out of the city. So what is the effect of that? What is the effect of that? Was Gaal and his clan a party to the murder of those 70 sons? No. So while Gaul gets thrown out of town, he also gets sent away the day before the Holocaust for Shechem. So God has divinely separated, as you, as you might say, sheep from the goats. And I'm not, I'm not saying he's very sheepy, but, but what he isn't is, is a goat in the sense of one of those who has blood on his hands from the murder of those 70 sons. So in effect, God has removed this fellow from the day of judgment that is coming on the following day. That brings us to phase two in verses 42 through 45. Now we have three companies of men. And, and, and the irony of it is the people of Shechem are kind of stupidly going on without realizing Abimelech is a man who wants his revenge. Now, I suspect that the people of Shechem said, okay, Gaul and his guys are gone, and, 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 and Abimelech has proven his point, and, and Zebel now is back in charge, so we won't see Abimelech for, you know, who knows how long. He's going to be back at Aruma doing his therapy. And, and, and so they're, they're not worried about it. But the next morning, they head out to the fields, and who do they find? Well, Abimelech gets word. The people are back out in the fields. He comes, and now he sends two of his squads, two of his divisions, to kill the people who are in the fields. The other one takes the city gates. And now he goes inside the city, storms that city, slaughters everyone there, right? Tears the city down, stone upon stone, and sows salt on it, which is a symbolic way of saying, you'll never exist again. Now, you would say to yourself, well, that ought to take care of that, right? Goodbye, Abimelech. And, and, but we wouldn't have the fire coming from Shechem that would go against him. So 
the story continues. I call this the story of the Twin Towers. And uh, that's probably not very politically correct, so call it the Two Towers and we'll go on. The first tower is the, is the, is the tower uh, of, and it may be just saying the fortress there of Shechem. And Shechem may have actually had a fortified location that people would flee to when there was an attack from, from uh, some enemy. And, and so it's this group of people, and again, it's the leaders who were instrumental in appointing Abimelech as king and of giving him the funds by which the, the, the men were hired and the brothers were murdered. These guys now run for cover, and where do they go? They go to the inner sanctuary of the temple of El Barith. I'll bet they didn't even stop by the bar for a drink, which they had been to, you remember, before, but that's another story. And, and so here they are going in, seeking their safety and their deliverance from their God and his temple. Now, as I read the story, and, I, and it's a little hard to tell, but it seems to me that it's not particularly high. It's more like a bank vault. And so what happens is it seems like you have Abimelech who goes out to one of the nearby mountains, has everybody cut down a, 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 some kind of a very burnable uh, tree or a limb. They drag it in and, and, and they're going to have a roast. And, and so it looks like they actually burn it on the top, that the people are in this inner sanctum, and that they actually go up on the roof of that and set fire, whether those people were smoked or, or, or whether they were burnt or whatever, we don't know, but a thousand people died. Those people who had been responsible to facilitate Abimelech, literally, my friends, fire has come from Abimelech and he has destroyed them. Is that not right? Fire has come and, and they are destroyed. Now, he won't quit. He goes to Thebes. And he's going to pour out his vengeance. We don't know where Thebes was, but we suspect from looking at it that Thebes has nothing to do with the slaughter of those 70 sons. And so here are the people at Thebes who have been now surrounded by Abimelech and his forces. And, and those people now run for, for shelter in their tower. And what does Abimelech say to himself? He doesn't take a road scholar to figure this one out. Hey, it worked the last time. It's going to work now, right? I'm going to do the same thing that I did back in Shechem, and I'm going to burn these guys out. And so it looks like just the perfect thing. Just rerun the same, the same script, except for one little detail, and that was the, uh, the millstone. And it looks to me like now in this instance, the people are gathered up on the top, and they are fortified, and, they, and they, the entrance would have to be come from down below. And he's probably burning away at the gate, as it were. Here's where my friend Davis comes along, and I just love this. I just love this. It's a footnote by a scholar. These are not the kind of footnotes you usually get from scholars. He says this. One can just imagine a husband panting beside his wife as they run to refuge in the Thebes Tower exasperated that his wife insists on lugging her upper millstone along. <laughs> Doubtless she responded, Now dear, you never know when you might need a good millstone. 
Don't you love that? Millstone may have weighed 20 up to 20 some pounds. But she's carrying it along. Now think about it, really. If you're, if you know that you're going to be under siege, then the reality is those thousand people up there have to eat. What are you going to do? Not only did they probably, if, if he's complaining about dragging along the millstone, he's probably going to sack a grain too. I don't know who got that, but they got to have food. And so here she is, she looks over the side, and lo and behold, here's the ringleader standing right below her. Now, I take it because he knows what hit him, right? Or, or maybe I should say, he knows who hit him. Here again is, is a woman like Jael with Sisera, only she's unnamed. We know nothing about her other than she's one of those there and she's got a millstone at her disposal. It was the tools of her trade. I'll bet you, by the way, in that culture, her husband wasn't dragging that thing for her. She was probably carrying it herself. And maybe she said, I'm sick and tired of carrying this thing. I'm just throwing her over the rail. But he obviously looks up. Abimelech obviously looks up because he sees that he's going to be killed by a woman. And that's the point. If there was anything that, that a great military hero did not want, it was to die at the hand of a, of a woman, and certainly not with a millstone. Right? It just went against your grain. Sorry. <laughs> just checking to see if you're awake. Some people take longer than others. I can't help you. All right. So he says to his, to his man beside him, run me through. Run me through. I want to be killed by a sword, not by a woman. The interesting thing is, he does not get his wish. Not only does Abimelech die, he dies in shame. And you know why we say that? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 21. That's the time when, when uh, David has sent word to Joab. And Joab has put... Um, I've gone blank. Uriah. Uriah. Thank you very much, Tom. He's put Uriah on the front lines, and he got too close and got killed. Now, that was the plan. But you remember what Joab says? When David hears about this, he's going to say, Didn't you learn anything from Phoebus? You don't get too close to the wall. You may not get shot by an arrow. You may get bombed by a millstone. It seems to me that from that day on at the military school of Israel, everybody used that as a classic instance of here's how you don't do battle when laying siege. So if Abimelech didn't want anybody to know, he didn't get his wish. Everybody knew and remembered the millstone from that point on. Okay, so he gets a so to speak, splitting headache, and the Israelites go home, I would assume, in peace. But look at the last two verses. The glory goes to God. Judgment falls on Abimelech. Fire comes out, so to speak, through the woman uh, upon Abimelech, and he dies for his wickedness. Fire comes from Abimelech on the people of Shechem for their part in the conspiracy, and they are all destroyed and therefore Jotham's curse, which has been pronounced, which is virtually a prophecy as I see it, is now fulfilled. But I want you to notice who doesn't die. 
Gaal and his relatives don't. They weren't a part of it. And neither were the people of Thebes. So God brings judgment on those who are guilty. But he brings deliverance, as it were, for those who were not. I, I call that precision bombing. Now let's talk just for a moment here about what this should mean. First of all, let me just go back to the, to the broad picture of the book of Judges and, and uh, talk about a couple of reasons why uh, I'm here uh, in, in Judges rather than somewhere else. I don't believe there's a, an Old Testament or New Testament book that any better characterizes the postmodern age in which we live than the book of Judges. It just seems to me that we are living, I should say we are reliving, as it were, what's happening. Now, I'm going to cheat and take you on ahead, but when you look at the end of the book of Judges, you'll see that, that scenario with the, with the homosexuality and whatever, with the, with the tribe of, of um, Benjamin. You've got Judges, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's the Canaanites living in sin, and God judges them. Judges chapter 19, we now have the Israelites living exactly the same way, and God is going to bring judgment upon them for their sin. I ask you to read Romans chapter 1 and read your newspaper and then read Judges 19 and tell me we are not living the same life in our culture, that we are not exactly there today. So it seems to me you've got to say the days are the same, men are the same, God is the same, and they were waiting for their king to come. Is that not what we're doing? They're, they're, I, I can't, you know, this it just seems to me that sticks out. Anyway, the other thing about judges that I like is that, that all the subtleties and the sophistication are gone. I, I would say when I was in prison, but I, I guess I better say when I taught school in prison and did seminars in prisons, one of the things that I discovered was that the sins that were committed inside those prison walls were no different than the sins that were committed outside them, but they just weren't as sophisticated about how they did it. And, and, and so it was easier to see. And, and what I'm saying to you is, when we look at the book of Judges and we see these things, we see people getting chopped up and so on, we say, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that? As though we're not doing it today. So it shows us the wickedness of our own day in, in a sort of distant way. And so we find ourselves pointing our fingers and looking down our nose at those people. And all of a sudden we realize it's us. It, it's, like, it's like David being told the story about the, the little lamb that was taken away by Nathan. And all of a sudden he realizes, that's me. Oh, and that takes a little different color. The other, the other reason, and I've got about eight or nine in my, in my list, but I'll give you this one last one. It's my test for the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. When Paul says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired and profitable, this is the greatest test case I know of, of that. If we can see that God's Word is not only true but relevant in the book of Judges, then I think you've got to say it's going to be that way anywhere you go. So I love it. I love it. People walk away from it. i, I, I got to say, I just kind of enjoy it. All right. What does it say to the Israelites of old about men? One of the great lessons the Israelites learned, the hard way, I might say, is you can't keep the gold covenant. You can't. No wonder. Hey, you ever think about this? 
Why did they come to a new God with a new covenant? Baal Barith, the Baal of the covenant. It wasn't the old covenant, and it wasn't our new covenant. It was a new covenant to them. Why do you suppose they went for another covenant? Because they found out they couldn't keep the old one. They couldn't keep it. That's what Joshua said in verse twenty in chapter twenty-four. He gets them together and they're gathered together right here at Shechem. And he says, You guys got a choice to make. Are you going to obey God or are you going to keep following these other gods? They said, We're going to obey God. And he says, You can't do it. You can't do it. If salvation is going to come, it isn't going to be coming because the Israelites picked the right king. It's going to be because their king comes and picks them. And that's true, of course, in the New Testament sense as well. About God, the sovereignty of God in history, is that not something that Israelites of old needed to learn early on? God is greater than Abimelech. He is greater than Gaal. He is greater than the Sidonians or the, or, or the Amorites or the Midianites or the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. God is in control of history. He is orchestrating history in a very precise way to bring about his purposes. I'm going to jump down to our day. I would love to see someone teach open theology from this text. Remember what open theology is? I hope you don't. Open theology basically says God is fallible too. And, and God makes mistakes and he's bungling his way through history, but he's learning He's learning, and he's getting smarter all the time, but he doesn't really know what's going to happen. And he doesn't make it happen. He just kind of bungles his way along until it works out right. Read this text and tell me God is a God of open theology. He just closed his theology and said, I'm in charge here. I'm the sovereign God, and I bring about my purposes and promises. And when I say fire's coming out of Abimelech to burn Shechem, it will. And when I say fire's coming out of Shechem and it's going to burn Abimelech, it will. And it does. God is sovereign. Hey, we live in days when we're looking around, and it isn't Babylon or Assyria. It's North Korea and Iran and countries in the Middle East and Pakistan and Afghanistan. And we're wringing our hands and we're saying, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And I have to tell you, not only is God sovereign, but he works providentially. The reality is, if we hadn't been told in this text that it was God that was at work, would have said, well, wasn't that a stroke of good luck? This text begins and ends by telling us this was what God purposed and this is what God did. And what that tells me is every detail of what is happening in our newspapers is being orchestrated by God to bring about the end of his plan exactly as he purposed and promised it. Man, I mean, if you've lost your job, if, you're, if your IRA went south, whatever it is that's going on bad for you, it's in his plan. And we're going to go exactly where God wants. By the way, Abimelech's kind of a prototype of the Antichrist, is he not? Government in the last days is not going to be the means by which God rewards those who do right and punishes those who do evil. It's going to flip. That's where the tribulation comes along, and it's God who will deliver us from that. I've got to end with this. Where does true safety and deliverance come? I read about those two towers, and I thought of these two texts. 
Psalm 61, verse 3. Indeed, you are my shelter, a strong tower that protects me from the enemy. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous person runs to it and is set safely on high. You want safety? You want deliverance? You want salvation? Don't go to the temple of El Barith. Go to God. Don't go to Abimelech. Go to God. He is the strong tower, and in him we are safe. And we know that tower is the one who sent Jesus to the cross. By the way, there's one last contrast to Abimelech. How does Abimelech rise to power? By taking other people's lives, the shedding of other people's lives, blood. How does our Lord Jesus win salvation? By giving his own life. And interestingly, in that text that was read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, when our Lord is installed as the king and everything is under his control, what does he do? He hands the kingdom back to the Father. That's the kind of king we have. That's the kind of king who saves. One last text, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Judgment happened pretty quickly for Abimelech and Shechem, three years, pretty fast. Down through the pages of Scripture, Christians have been saying, How long? How long? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming precisely as God has purposed and promised. Trust in Jesus. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this book. And we ask that you would help us always to flee to your tower for safety. In you, we are safe forevermore. There's someone here this morning who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus. May they trust in him as the one who purchased their salvation is the one who is the king and who has chosen to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.